Well, welcome back to the fourth week of our study in the book of Revelation that we're calling Rediscover Jesus Through Revelation. Today, we're looking at chapters four and five, uh, especially, and we might get into a little bit of chapter six. Uh, but the focus of our study today is, is really getting into who Jesus is. And we have this beautiful picture uh, depicted in chapters four and five of events that are going on around the throne uh, related to Jesus. And so we've titled this section, uh, the, the Song of Jesus's Glory. And so I'm again joined by two great friends, Don Harris and David Pfizer. Guys, it's good to be back together and to dig in a little bit more deeply into this incredible book. Thank you. It's good to be back. This is a great passage, so we're excited. Yeah, the Don, we were just talking, and uh, you, um, before we came on, said that this is a passage that reaffirms your conviction of the doxological theme in the book of Revelation. Talk more about that. Well, uh, I will say it's not just doxological, but I'll also say it's the theocentric uh, theme that we see all the way through. It's definitely Christocentric, uh, but what is ascribed to them, uh, both God the Father and uh, the Lamb, the slain Lamb who is now risen and exalted and in heaven, uh, erupts in worship. And mm. I... I would just say that as we go through it, we're going to see a lot of that. And I would also say that, hey, if if you can read the book of Revelation uh, without worshiping, then something's definitely wrong in the way you're reading it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because this is a book that is so full of praise and so full of glory. Uh, so we have key, key words here that point to this. We have, as far as the... Um, the, the God-centered theme, uh, we have the word throne mentioned 17 times in these two chapters. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have our introduction to the word worship, but it's full of worship with everyone and everything and heaven and earth singing glory and praise to God. Um, so I think that as we go through this, we're going to see that this is a real, this, this is a happy chapter. <laughs> Good, a great, great way to describe it. A, a happy chapter. Good. Well, you, you know what? It's it, it's not only happy, but it's interesting, isn't it? Because we now we get into all of these different images. Some of them appear very strange to us, and uh, and which causes many uh, commentators to come up with uh, some fantastic descriptions or 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 uh, allusions to what these might mean. And so we'll dig into a a little bit of that as we go through this chapter. But here in chapter four, we begin uh, with uh, John uh, saying that after after the the seven letters to the seven churches, he, he looks and behold, a door is standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which this is John writing, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here. Then I will show you what you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Cornelian and the and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 
24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns in the, on their heads. From the throne came flashes of light and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Well, there's a ton in there to unpack. Where do we want to start? I think we have to start at the beginning, verses one and two. All right. What strike you about those two verses? Well, uh, I want to say that there is a school of interpretation that sees something uh, very significant here. But this gets us into our interpretive approaches and also a bit of genre here. But uh, who is speaking? We know it's John. Uh, we three are of the opinion that this is John the Apostle, uh, who was an intimate friend of Christ. Uh, but notice that at the end of verse 1, it says, come up here. And then verse two says, at once I was in the spirit. And with this language, the interpretive school believes that John is a type of the church. And that since we don't hear of the church mentioned in the rest of the book of Revelation, that therefore there's an event happening here of which John is a type for the church called the rapture. Hmm. Now. I have a few problems with that. And the problem is that in the apocalyptic language, uh, nowhere do we hear of John or a person being a type of the church. Um, we know that Christ is the head of church and we are members of his body and we are the church. But here, I think this is where we need to state our axiom. It cannot possibly mean to us what it could not have meant to them. Mm. So I wonder how many of the believers in these seven churches would have thought, oh, there it is. Thank the Lord. John was now having a vision in heaven, and we're not mentioned in the rest of this book, so we're going to escape everything that follows. Mm. I think it shows the fallacy of the viewpoint when we try to uh, support a view that is weak, and then we start finding types where there aren't types or types of things that are not accurate or correct. So right off the bat, I would just like to say, uh, I don't believe that is what is happening here. But I did hold that view for many, many years. I think what stands out to me is, you know, just from a, a literarily chronological reading, this is going to sound like Captain Obvious here, but chapter four follows chapter three. And so we see this after this, I looked. So after he finished writing down these seven letters, this vision continues. And the fact that it is a door standing open in heaven and he's called to, to come up here, to, to walk through this doorway. Uh, is a, a very significant point. Um, he is being welcomed into the presence of the Almighty God. Mm. And we know this because he sees this uh, throne 
standing in heaven. And because throne does appear so many different times uh, throughout the book, let alone these uh, chapters, we know that this speaks to the sovereignty of God over all things. Uh, how, how can we justify that? Well, again, the number of times the word shows up shows a significance, but even more so because this comes after the writing of the letters, there is something uh, to be said about he received the, the words to put down that Jesus dictated to him, and now he's being brought into the presence of the Father. Hmm. Um, we're given this incredible description. There's, there's nothing else like it in all of Revelation. Even the, the thrones of the 24 elders are not even given anything remotely close to this kind of description. So there is a, an absolute significance to the sovereignty of God over all things, over the church, over, uh, the, over creation, and over all of the threats of violence and the violence that is being breathed out against God's people uh, that we heard about in various and sundry ways in those seven letters. Yeah, good. Good. There's an interesting structural component here, too, uh, in terms of how Revelation is, is organized. And uh, and that that can't escape us either. Um, and, and I don't know, you know, I'm not settled on this. And in, in at this moment, um, but certainly it's something that we need to consider. Um, it, one of the interesting structural elements of Revelation is that we have a number of what are referred to as septets. These these uh, groupings of seven things. Uh, we'll talk next week about the seven seals. Uh, in fact, we're, we'll be introduced to them today, the scroll with seven seals. Uh, we'll see that also the seven trumpets and the seven uh, bowls. Um, but there are those who will say that the seven churches are a part of those, uh, that grouping of septets. And, uh, and Don, this might play a little bit to some uh, in interpretive uh, methods because there is a temptation for some to look at those seven churches as seven different periods of time. I, I don't think, and I think we all agree that that's not what the seven churches are about. Um, it, that those are actual churches. They're in specific historical uh, time, uh, dealing with specific issues at that time. And Jesus is, addresses them in a very pastoral manner. Uh, out of deep concern for where those churches are and, and out of a deep desire to encourage them. But still, there are seven of them. And when we get into chapter four, particularly the, the conclusion uh, of this first uh, the paragraph here that we just read, uh, we meet what becomes a marker in all the other septets. And that is that from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. And, uh, and I think there's something significant there. Either it's marking the end of a, a group of septets, or it's, it's marking the beginning of the next group of septets. And I don't know exactly where uh, or how uh, we're to look at that. 
but only to mention that we'll meet it again. Uh, those roars of uh, flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder uh, we'll meet in chapter 8, chapter 11, and chapter 16 after those uh, different septets. So it's something to keep in mind, and perhaps as we get deeper into the septets, uh, we can revisit what significance those might hold. This reminds me of Sinai and Moses' ascent mm -hmm. to Sinai to receive uh, the word of God, the commands of God. And when we draw close to God, we have this sort of, or in scripture, when God's people approach him, we, we have this sort of language uh, that, again, uh, agreeing with David, I think it reinforces the sovereignty of God. As C.S. Uh, Lewis said about Aslan the lion, he's not safe. Mm -hmm. And so this holiness of God, we have John looking upon it, uh, but we also have him, uh, as we'll see, uh, in awe and wonder of what is happening. And so we see this all the way from Sinai and through to the, the end uh, in chapters 19 to uh, 21, we, we have similar language. Um, I'm thinking of the generation that heard these words for the first time. They're being read in their churches. Mm -hmm. And what an encouragement it would be to have heard the words of sometimes encouragement and sometimes the words of rebuke mm -hmm. and then the exhortation to listen and to hear but then for that immediately to be followed up with this encouragement, God's on the throne. Mm -hmm. God's in control. Yes, you're facing difficult times internally and externally. It's going to get worse. But let me encourage you. God's on the throne. He's sovereign. Mm -hmm. And when we come into God's presence, I think we have these sort of phenomena. And whether it marks the, the beginning or end of a section, it is interesting that it's repeated throughout. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, what did you note earlier? Uh, three times it's repeated. Right. Three, yeah, three additional times. Well, it, it is interesting because just like last week we discussed in regards to the seven churches, um, that they are experience, experiencing uh, religious turmoil. I mean, there's, there's syncretism going on in the church. They're being rebuked for that syncretism. Um, they're experiencing political turmoil at, at some level as they're uh, being threatened and persecuted. Um, th there's all kinds of social turmoil. Uh, the Jews are, are uh, speaking poorly, slanderously uh, against them. And, and just like uh, we see these in the seven churches, we'll again see the, these uh, but repeated in the other septets, these themes of uh, the, the tumultuous times of persecution, of uh, political turmoil, of economic and social upheaval, uh, uh, all, the, all the way through uh, the book. And uh, so there might be something to uh, this that we need to uh, keep in mind. But Don, I love that point. In spite of all of this turmoil, Look who is in control, who seats, who who sits sovereignly on his throne, mm -hmm. and uh, and and we're invited into that uh, worshipful experience 
uh, thanks to this revelation to John. I think one of the things that uh, comes to mind when I read about the the flashes of lightning and, and rumblings and peals of thunder and, and how it repeats or is paralleled later on is that this speaks to God's ongoing judgment against the ungodly and the wicked in the world. And that, you know, it might not necessarily occur to that first audience as Don was uh, painting that picture for us. It might not uh, be clear at this particular point, but by the, the second repetition and the third repetition, you clearly have this sense that uh, God holds in his hands, as it were, uh, the, the judgment of the, his enemies, who are the enemies of the church. And so if we're going to uh, be encouraged, you know, uh, as again, as Don said, they've, they've received these letters of both comfort and uh, rebuke or, or discipline. Uh, but now look, God holds the judgment of his enemies who are our enemies. And he has promised that if we will uh, persevere, if we will endure, if we will overcome, we will be pillars in his church. We will have, uh, his, he will give us a new name. And, uh, you know, you're, you're, you want to get encouragement from any corner or crevice you can, but here it's just spilling out all over the place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. Well, we've mentioned several times that there are allusions to the Old Testament and how important it is for us to understand the Old Testament in order mm-hmm. to to have a, a proper understanding of Revelation. Don, you just alluded to that a moment ago with uh, this reminding you of Sinai. There are a couple other allusions, it seems, perhaps, to the Old Testament in this first passage. Um, it, we read in chapter th- uh, in verse three, for example, uh, th- this description of the one who sits on the throne had the appearance uh, of Jasper and Carnelian. Uh, we meet this again, uh, or, or we have met this in uh, Exodus 28, uh, perhaps an allusion to Aaron's uh, breastplate. That mm-hmm. was, uh, gosh, I was going to say bedazzled. Can you say? Be- <laughs> that's not the word, though, is it? That's what, that's what, uh, that's it was what dazzling. Children, yeah, that's what our children did, wasn't it, uh, years ago when they would decorate different things. But but uh, the, with, the, with the number of jewels on Aaron's breastplate that represented the, the 12 tribes, mm-hmm. might that be an allusion to... to um, Again, God's sovereignty, um, but his uh, his priestly role in uh, with Israel. Well, in the least, it, it gives us this idea that this is the same God from the beginning of the formation of God's people as as a nation, as God gathering His church Israel together, to this time thousands and thousands of years later, and and then, of course, in a sense, outside of time, being the throne room of heaven. So there, again, is another encouraging word for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see. Um, We have that. We also have uh, allusions that we can find in Daniel 7 and Ezekiel 1. Uh, So John, you know, was John given this vision because it was 
in line with these older older images or is John recalling this on his own? I mean, it's like chicken egg, which came first? I don't know, but I think we can be confident that the spirit inspired John to, to find these, these hooks to hang uh, these visions on. And it's not just because it would be understandable to people, but I think it's also important for us to grasp that the imagery continues to show that this is the same God of the Old Testament. He is the same God of the New Testament. Yeah, beautiful. That continuity is so important to our faith. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Well, he goes on, of course, and talks about uh, the throne, and above the throne was a rainbow uh, in, that had the appearance of an emerald. And, of course, this isn't the first time we encounter this bow. Um, we might recall uh, the Noahic covenant mm -hmm. uh, with the bow uh, being presented as a symbol uh, of God's uh, relenting of what he could rightly do as punishment. Um, but he relents from that and makes the promise to, uh, to no longer punish in the same way that he had done. Something I find really interesting is that John goes on in his description for uh, eight verses before we get the identity of the one on the throne. Uh, now, we we're already making assumptions because we've read ahead, but this is what John sees, and it's such an overwhelming vision. And it's also consistent, as David said, that he is seeing the same things that Ezekiel saw, that Daniel saw, that uh, we see uh, in other places in Scripture, that we, we know what we're getting to. But it's interesting, the description just goes on and on and on for eight verses. And then we read, holy, 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 and don't you hear Isaiah there, chapter 6. Yes. Mm -hmm. is the Lord God Almighty. This is Yahweh Elohim uh, Almighty. Uh, someone help me with my Hebrew word here. Uh, El Elyon, probably, or something like that. A anyways, this is the Old Testament God. It's the same God. Mm -hmm. And... And John, who is the apostle, I mean, he's now fully in prophetic mode here, isn't he? Uh, revealing to us who God is. And it, and it is interesting, leading into that, um, uh, John writes, and around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in the front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second like a living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, yeah. are full of eyes all around day and night. They never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. It's interesting, isn't it? This image of these four living creatures. Perhaps it was Irenaeus who gives us. Uh, one of the first interpretations of what these four living creatures are, as he suggests that they represent the Gospels, the four Gospels. 
Uh, many have suggested that he does this in order to establish that there are only four Gospels, not uh, the, more than four. And uh, so he's using scripture here to, to um, solidify a particular theological position uh, in one sense. But many after him uh, use the same argument. Um, Victorinus in 260 AD, when he writes his commentary, uh, makes the same suggestion, perhaps influenced by Irenaeus. And then ultimately Jerome, uh, Augustine uh, as well, will make illusion that these four living creatures represent the Gospels. What are your thoughts? Well, I think it's it is interesting. Again, this is uh, in part Ezekiel's vision of these four creatures around the the throne, um, and it's just fascinating to me that the Spirit would inspire John to write this down. That he would be given eyes to see almost exactly the same thing that Ezekiel saw. Um, then he sees the same thing or, or a very similar thing to what uh, Daniel saw. And we could even look at it that what Daniel saw from afar, John sees up close. And uh, in a way, I think one of the more fascinating things to that is in both cases, the, the time period that each of these men is in is inconsequential because, as it were, the veil is being pulled away um, from the world so that they can see into uh, the heavenly sphere, as it were. And so time doesn't matter, in a sense. They're, they're seeing almost the same thing and perhaps at the same time. I will also want to take us back to Ezekiel because this is very much the same thing that equals Ezekiel saw in his vision. And as we see this, it's familiar. It's something that if we've read our Bibles, it immediately comes to mind and we recognize that uh, this is the same God surrounded by the same type of creatures. Mm -hmm. And as we it delve into what he sees, we understand uh, that these are these are not human beings. Uh, they're not even called angels here. They're called creatures. But who are they? What are they? What do they represent? Or what are they in reality? And there is the suggestion that these are a specific order of angels, perhaps the seraphim. With, you know, two they flew, with two they covered the feet, with two they covered their faces. And then we have this same language as we see in Isaiah 6, you know, holy, holy, holy. Mm -hmm. uh, so per perhaps this is what we see. I, I don't know. And I think as far as the, the faces of the creatures and they're being filled with eyes, it probably tells us that there's a, a measure of intelligence here that weighs way beyond human comprehension, but it may be a bit unfortunate that the interpretation is that these are the Gospels, because then we have to look at Ezekiel in the same way, uh, or there would be need to be some consistency there. I did find it fascinating as a young Christian to, uh, to see these portrayed as the Gospels. You know, was that the author's intention? 
I don't know, but I don't lean that direction, I'll say. But I do think it's a marvelous correspondence and good for imagination. And as, as we know, apocalyptic is imaginative literature. If I may offer a small corrective, um, with all respect to Don, just I don't know that we should refer to them as angels, uh, because angels are a particular type of divine creature. Um, they're not being sent out to announce anything particular. Um, but being seraphim, they serve a particular purpose around the throne of God in some way, shape, or form. Uh, or, you know, it's hard to tell whether they're seraphim or uh, cherubim or, or what have you. Um, you know, these are, of course, Hebrew terms that we're utilizing. But what it does tell us is that it's not just God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There are divine creatures that God created in eternity past, as it were. And uh, as to what they all do, we don't necessarily know. I don't know that scripture gives us a full account of what these creatures uh, or what every single divine creature might do. Uh, we do know that some rebelled, right? Um, we know that the majority stayed loyal to the Lord, but they all serve a purpose in terms of bringing God glory by the fulfillment of the purpose for which they were created. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I like that point. And whether or not we would interpret this allegorically as Irenaeus did uh, mm -hmm. in the allusion to the Gospels or not, th these creatures are uh, declaring a message, aren't they not? Uh, I mean, that message is God is holy. The Lord God Almighty is holy. And not only that, he was and is and is to come. And so there is a declarative role that these creatures are playing. And I think that probably is a, in part what uh, some, um, what have inspired some to make the allusion to the gospels. The gospels are declarative of the one who was and is and is to come. It, by way of clarification, I'm not saying that these are seraphim. Uh, right. And uh, but there are some who do make that statement and they're dogmatic on it. Um, I think the point of similarity, uh, just for the sake of argument, is that they have six wings. And I think the seraphim, the burning ones, uh, mm -hmm. also had six wings. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, we notice with the burning ones in Isaiah that they took a coal off the altar and they applied it to Isaiah's mouth and purified him so that he could speak purely as, as God's spokesman. And then interesting enough, we have that same expression, holy, holy, holy. And so I can understand why some people would be more dogmatic. I, I don't know, because in this section, verses six through eight, they're consistently called living creatures. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's just clarification, but something else that is either confusing or interesting is who are these 24 elders? Mm -hmm. Right, because yeah, we meet them again uh, as we go on. We've met them already in, in uh, verse uh, 4, sitting on the 24 thrones, and we meet them again in verse 10. 
as they fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. Well, I think the simplest uh, definition uh, or explanation rather is that we have the 12 patriarchs and the 12 apostles. Uh, Jesus himself in his gospel accounts uh, certainly gives his apostles that status on the same level as the patriarchs. And so here we have an image that brings both the Old Testament and the New Testament together. Uh, again, another sign of both the continuity, but also a sign of the discontinuity that this there's something else going on than just what happened in the Old Testament, that the, mm. What happened and is recorded in the New Testament, particularly in the person of Jesus Christ, in his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, uh, is greater than all who came before him, as we read in uh, the book of Hebrews. You know, his his name is greater than the angels, um, and so there's there's something about this collection of the 12 uh, patriarchs and the 12 apostles that, that makes this, you know, if, if 12 is the, the number of completeness, then 24 is even better than twice as great in a sense. And that's pretty much the view that I was taught. And that would be my go-to interpretation and understanding, but I find myself less certain of it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, are these elders are they humans now in their glorified state mm. um, i mean i don't have a better interpretation <laughs> mm. i don't have an alternative one but what i find interesting in this whole passage is that um of chapter four especially is that the throne is the epicenter of activity it is the orientation point. It's the focus point. And you see this with the prepositions all the way through. We've already talked about in verse two, on the throne, verse four, around the throne, verse five, from the throne, verse six, before the throne, and then around the throne, on each side. I mean, there's no doubt that the impression that you get being one of these seven churches or even a member in one of these seven churches, hallelujah, God is the center of everything. Mm. He's in control. And because he's in control and because of who he is uh, and was and is to come, he is to be worshipped. Uh, well, just that he is worshipped in song and not just in action. Yeah, you know, we have the action of the elders uh, throwing down their or casting their crowns down before the throne of God as a way of acknowledging His supremacy and His sovereignty. Um, but they don't just leave it at that; they sing, and and this is getting at the the doxological focus that Don mentioned earlier. That you know, when we see God, it's not just this kind of existential moment uh it it 
grabs hold of everything we are. And, and I say that because what is the state of a person when they, when they are singing? I mean, there's, there's just a, a, a deep heartfelt um, giving of oneself, the entirety of oneself to something when you, when you're singing uh, out of awe and joy and, and what have you. Um, you know, I, I think of the times where I have been in a worship service and, you know, whether you're in the pew or up front behind the pulpit and you, you just know everybody is loving this hymn, right? They, they just sing with gusto and vigor and joy and you can't help but get caught up in that. And it, it just increases uh, the, the desire to sing out your lungs for God's glory. And that's what I, I picture here. Yeah, I, I love that, especially for those of you who can sing. That's a beautiful picture. For those <laughs> of us who can't sing, that, that's, that's uh, a little discouraging, I, I think. Uh, but uh, we're hopeful that uh, in glory, it not only will our physical bodies change, but our voices will as, as well. And we'll be a beautiful song. Lord. <laughs> Well, somewhere we're told to make a joyful noise. You're covered in this age as well, Michael. <laughs> Good. Good. Well, yeah, I was just going to make the comment. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's such a temptation, and I feel this temptation, even now as we're talking, to um, really land on an allegorical interpretation of this passage and look at the 24, the 24 thrones and the 24 elders as being the 12 patriarchs and the 12 apostles um, uh, or, and the four living creatures being the, the four gospels, uh, the six wings, Victorinus talks about the six wings of each, uh, making 24 sets of wings, uh, being the Tonka, the, the, the Hebrew Bible. Um, and, and so there is that temptation to find the, the hidden meaning in this text, but. Don, I am so grateful for you pointing us to the throne. I mean, the, the focus of this is the throne. It's not the, the elders or the creatures. The focus here is on God. Right. And I think we can get so caught up in trying to identify everything. And when we can, we should. But for the person who loves God and they're ushered into his presence, so to speak, they're overwhelmed. But all they can do, it's interesting here, give glory, honor, and thanks. Mm. And I think that the hymn here that we have, we, we have two hymns, uh, one in verse 8 and one in verse 11. Uh, so it, doxology, praise, worship, it is the natural response for someone uh, who is a follower of Christ and who is a God lover. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, and it's the contrast, uh, just to dwell on the word thanks in verse 9. We'll find out later that this word thanks is used in a very judgmental sense uh, as we get into uh, the, the, the plagues, the punishments, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, because they were not thankful. Mm -hmm. It's the emphasis. So, uh, the mark of someone who who knows God and loves God is that they're thankful. And mm -hmm. one of the ways they express that thanks, as David has said, is through this beautiful expression of worship. 
Mm-hmm. What is that going to sound like? It, right. is, is that the thunder we hear in the background? Is that the orchestra of heaven that we're hearing? Um, I mean, again, I said this was a happy book <laughs> or a happy chapter. Uh, certainly, may, I don't. I think it's happy in the sense that it's blessed. It's such a blessing to us, and it blesses God. So I'm, I'm just. How can we not be overwhelmed? with this sense of this Lord God who was and is and is to come. Yeah. David, mm-hmm. you got yeah, two, two things that uh, you've reminded me, Don, the, the first is that we cannot separate our discipleship, our, our day-to-day following of, of Christ, both individually and corporately as the church from our worship, nor can we separate our worship our, our doxological relationship with the Lord from discipleship. Mm-hmm. I think to to separate them in a sense is to uh, is, is on the same level as trying to artificially separate the uh, emotions or affections of a person from their their intellect or their will. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I, it's kind of a, a, a feeding of, of sorts. One feeds into the other. And we should encourage that um, because clearly when we are worshiping, we are at our best because our focus, our attention, our, our hearts and our minds are on the Lord, the one who is worthy of all of that and more. The, the other thing that uh, reminded me with, with this singing is this almost uh, serves as a prelude. We're, we're not there yet. But just as a little uh, preview of sorts, it's a a prelude to what we will come across in Revelation chapter 7, where we see uh, the the church gathered, uh, Mm -hmm. people from every tongue, tribe, and nation praising the Lord. And, you know, that's where we're all headed. Mm -hmm. And it's not just those who are presently occupying the earth. It is... The, the church triumphant from all the way back to Adam to whatever day the Lord returns. Uh, to me, it's just exciting. It, it just gets me going. And I, I have to wonder, for those people in those seven churches, our, our brothers and sisters who made up those churches, who were facing whatever sorts of persecution and whatever temptations to uh, compromise, getting this vision, getting to hear about these heavenly creatures singing about the the sovereignty and glory of God and and, uh, singing of his worthiness. Maybe that was the the shot in the arm they needed (laughs) to be able to persevere, to endure, to say, okay, I know that there's still worse coming and I don't want it, but God is worthy. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, great word there. You know, I, along with that, uh, this idea of worship and discipleship, how that goes together. It, mm-hmm. it, uh, it seems to me that we can't uh, forget the missiological as well. I mean, the right. worship of God, the, the, the being a disciple is, uh, it should point us to the declarative act. 
of announcing who this God is to everyone, just like the, the four living creatures. This is who was and is and is to come. So there's a declarative nature here, too, in our worship, that as we are drawn to worship God, we are also drawn to declare who he is to the world. Unless we want to buy into the completely false idea that doctrine is, you know, man-made nonsense, which I know none of us does, but you know, that would be the other part of the puzzle, so to speak, right? Doxology and discipleship lead to doctrine. And what is probably one of the most important doctrines in terms of the mission of the church is the the Great Commission to go out and make disciples because Jesus has received all authority in heaven and on earth. Why is that? Because he conquered sin, death, and the devil. He has mm-hmm. shown himself worthy. And, and isn't that the, the claim and the song of verse 11? Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And as we'll see in the next chapter, uh, the Lamb is worthy to open the scroll because of what he accomplished. And because of what he accomplished, we have this missiological dynamic, this, this call, this command, this uh, commission to go out and declare to the nations that Jesus is Lord, that he who was dead is now alive, and he has forgiven us our, our sins. And, and he's coming. And he's, he's coming. coming back. Yeah. Yeah. He's taking names. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to go out on a limb here. Now, do you need I, a rope to hold on to? <laughs> I might, uh, or you might want to get out your sword. But um, it's in a way we're getting ahead of ourselves with this idea of proclamation, and I'm going to be the first to contend for the missiological theme in in Revelation. Of course, it's there, but we're not there yet. We're in heaven. Why is it that we don't have that here? Uh, this is the limb I'm going to go out on. We don't see the uh, the call to mission in chapter four because we're in heaven where it's complete already. It's perfect. Uh, but it reminds me of what John Piper says about the reason we have mission or missions is because God is not worshiped as he ought to be. Mm. But, but here in heaven, he's worshiped as he ought to be. And it's it's so glorious, it's so overwhelming, and I think we need to take our clue here and say, what is biblical worship? Uh, biblical worship focuses and centers on the one who sits on the throne. Mm. <laughs> I mean, you, you mean it's not about me? I that's the not, now, I know I'm not going out on a limb there, but. Um, <laughs> You mean it's but, not about me feeling good? No, it's not. Uh, and I'm thinking of how much so-called worship uh, passes for that, where mm. the themes of worship should be things that, as I've already said, the glory of God, giving God honor, being thankful to him, uh, acknowledging him as the one who is sovereign, as David reminded us of, as the one who 
uh, was and is and is to come, the one who is eternal, uh, even with his title, as we've already seen. He is Lord. He is God. He is almighty. He's creator in verse 11, and he's sustainer in verse 11. Mm-hmm. And the words given are words to say that you are worthy of this uh, to receive glory and honor and power. So, you know, I just think we need to take a page out of this book and say, this is for us. This is for our generation. And again, we talked about last week how there was so much syncretism and compromise and accommodation and and fear from mm-hmm. internal and external forces. But when our eyes go to God and see him as he is, this is the result. Mm-hmm. And, and our worship should look like that. And it's not about how I feel. But <laughs> I, can, I can tell you, this should give you a wonderful sense of security and, mm-hmm. and assurance and comfort. And that's a wonderful feeling. And I'll take that. Yeah. I like the fact that, you know, in a sense, Revelation begins with worship and ends with worship and and that should be the model for the way we live our faith in Jesus as well that you know if, if worship leads us to deeper discipleship and and deeper discipleship leads us to a better uh articulation of of doctrine which leads to uh greater uh doxology right the, the, the more this continues, the more this cycle grows and deepens and strengthens in the lives of God's people and, and his local churches, then the greater glory God receives. Mm-hmm. Because we're, you know, the true church will not keep this to themselves. Right. We're, we're not holy huddles coming together for our own feel good uh, love fest. Uh, we are we are coming in well for many reasons, not the least of which is to give God the glory. But we're also receiving uh, the glory of God. We're seeing, uh, in a sense, with the eyes of our hearts at least, uh, the 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 Shekinah glory, the the presence of God with His people. And if you are a true believer, that should have the result of you wanting to go out and tell others. You know, it's funny. I, I mean, I'm just thinking here, I 100% agree that, that this is so focused on worship. But isn't it interesting that in our day and age, we really have to define that? Um, yeah. And we have to say, well, worship is this. It's not this. And I think in part, that's why I land so heavily on the theocentric nature. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and, and David, I agree. Revelation begins with and ends with worship. Uh, but it's worship of God. It, yes, it's not. Absolutely. It's not what we're seeing necessarily today that we call worship um, that so often isn't, but it's, this is theocentric. This is all about him and it's pointing to him. And uh, boy, you guys have just highlighted that uh, so beautifully in, in our conversation. I'm moderating a, a class, an online class on the theology of worship. And I've been very fascinated with the, uh, responses and reflection papers of my students as we've talked about different aspects of worship. And it's interesting 
to, to kind of see the proverbial light bulbs go off in their heads as they have, are being confronted for the first time with some really uh, much deeper reflection on what worship is, not just uh, the, the components of worship, but the, the essence of worship. And, and to get to your point, Michael, you know, at least in the North American United States of the 21st century, we have a lot of people uh, among evangelical types, at least, who, when they hear the word worship, what do they think of? Singing. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they reduce worship down to singing. And in many cases, a lot of those songs, they're very peppy, catchy. They, they get you up and moving and clapping. And, you know, you feel like you're in the spirit. But really, I think for a lot of those people, it is an emotional high that releases this dopamine that, you know, I am a friend of God. You know, it's all about me. Uh, it's not about giving the glory to God. Now, that's a, a broad statement, I realized, and, and I'm brushing with a, a, a very big, or it's a stroke with a br- wide brush, but it's to make the point that Revelation gives us something entirely different, and it has nothing to do with whether you're using an organ or an electric guitar, a smoke machine, or a choir. It, it's who is the focal point of our worship, and are we humbling ourselves to come before him and, and put down before him, throw down before him those things that in a, a worldly sense would have value, but are absolutely nothing in comparison to him, the triune God of grace. I would just offer two things here um, with respect to the worship. And I, I know that we're going to have to move on, but um one is, I think worship brings us uh, into this awareness and experience of the transcendent. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not, I'm choosing my words carefully, the experience of the transcendent. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it also can bring us to an awareness and an appreciation of God's imminence. And that he comes to us. I think they, we both, you know, we meet there. But I'm reminded of how the Puritans would describe worship. And they would de- describe the, the sense of the presence of God as feeling the presence of God thickly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, man, if there's ever a feeling of thickness <laughs> with the presence of God, it's chapter four. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, Celtic worship had a different aspect, and they spoke of the difference between heaven and earth as being thin when when worship was real and when it was intense, when it was authentic. Mm-hmm. The, the space between heaven and earth was thin, mm-hmm. so that there was not such mm-hmm. a barrier to this transcendent God who became imminent and incarnated among us. And I think the best of worship incorporates both of those, Mm -hmm. that we feel the presence of God thickly because we focus on his attributes, not our feelings about what he has done for us and not saying that we shouldn't do that. So that's the thickness aspect, but then there's just a, thinness between heaven and earth that I feel that I reach up and I touch God. 
there or that mm-hmm. he touches me you know that there's that sense of uh presence in both of those ways that's good gosh we haven't even gotten into chapter five yet um <laughs> because it gets better doesn't it i was just gonna say yeah the two chapters are very clearly linked um mm. You know, I mean, in a sense, this is where the the number five there at the beginning is an artificial uh, barrier, as it were. Uh, I don't know that John's first audience would have bothered to stop and catch their breath because clearly the the imagery that John has presented by the end of chapter four, they want to hear more. And so do we. So we come to this beginning of this chapter and, and the plot thickens as it were, if I may borrow uh, Don's term, uh, we see if, if, if we're watching with a camera, as it were, the camera comes up close to him who is on the throne and there's this scroll that is sealed and uh, seven seals. And this angel comes forward almost uh, kind of like the, the person who speaks on behalf of the king, uh, because the king is so awesome, we we don't want him to speak. It would be incredible if he did. So he has his spokesperson, his royal spokesperson there. And what a what a question of questions. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And and verse three is almost anticlimactic. To this incredibly loud, uh, I almost imagine baritone voice, and no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And and we see the weight of that bearing down on John because verse four tells us, "I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it." And if that's where the chapter ended, oh my gosh. How discouraging. And yet it doesn't, right? Yeah. Yeah. One of the elders comes, John writes and says to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. That's the gospel in a, in a nutshell, right? Mm. Weep no more. (laughs) right yeah good and john continues and says in between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders i saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of god sent out into all the earth and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Mm -hmm. Wow. I I mean, this, I, I have to mention this. First mention in chapter four, verse 11, worthy. Uh, chapter 5, verse 2, worthy. Verse 4, worthy. Verse 9, worthy. Mm. Verse 12, worthy. I wonder if he's trying to make a point here. <laughs> <laughs> and, and worthy, 
has in its root uh, this sense of worth and worship. Mm-hmm. You know, so we see the worship theme continued even through the various language, even though the word worship isn't used again uh, for until uh, verse 14. We find that woven through this narrative is, is this theme. Um, and, and look at, uh, I, I know we've read all the way down uh, through verse, uh, portion of verse 9, but uh, John's reaction of, you know, he, he doesn't really know what's coming, I don't think. He's going to be shown what's coming. Mm-hmm. Yet he is overcome because, you know, here is God on his throne, the Lord God Almighty sitting on his throne with a scroll in his hand with seven seals. And it's the message. Mm-hmm. And he wants to know that message. And he's so distraught that he's, um, you know, maybe overcome by God's presence, by the majesty of, of it all, but wondering what is coming. And, you know, I just think it's a beautiful scene to and to feel the emotion of what's happening here. Yeah. Yeah. And and then we're introduced to the lamb. And as Grant Osborne reminded me this morning, uh, we have the the slain lamb here. But later on, we'll have the victorious ram. Mm hmm. You know, the, the, the lamb is later portrayed as a ram who uh, is uh, the, the perfect king crowned with seven horns. Mm. And, uh, and so we, you know, just the, the imagery, seven spirits of God. I mean, here's the, another septet. It's already been mentioned in the context. But, mm. um, you know, so we have father, we have son, we have spirit uh, represented here as well. Mm-hmm. Good. So important here, Don. You asked that question: uh, Is he trying to get our attention uh, with the idea of worthy? It, it really—it's about him, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it, you know, I say this often. So, so frequently, it seems that we think that this book is about us, and it's really not. It, it's about him, his glory. What's going to happen? What he's doing to complete his mission to bring more and more people to worship him, and and he says this here, doesn't he? Worthy are you to take the scroll, and the rejoicing that must have gone on in heaven to hear those words yeah. and to open its seals in verse nine, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from mm-hmm. every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and -hmm. they shall reign on the earth. And so we have now this marriage between doxology and discipleship and proclamation and missiology, you know, mission. We, here's where we have it. Um, Mm -hmm. The the purpose for his death, Mm. the, effectiveness, the efficacious work of his uh, sacrifice, your blood, you ransomed. And, you know, we should also remind ourselves that if we talk about 
uh, syncretism and compromise in the first century. Uh, we could mention it in the 21st century that there are some who do not, they hate this language of mm -hmm. ransom. Mm -hmm. and, and by the way, not a ransom to the devil. You know, the, the devil doesn't own us. He, he doesn't have us. This is, this is ransom to satisfy the, uh, the proper wrath of God. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we realize that you come to this hymn here in verse uh, 9 and 10. And it says something that people in our evangelical churches hate. I'm not saying all of them do, but there are some who call themselves evangelical that would reject this sense of, uh, and by your blood, you ransomed people for God. Mm hmm uh, let's not move away from this. It, it makes me mindful that every Lord's Day that God's people gather for proper Christ-centered worship uh, is a rehearsal Amen. <laughs> for that great ongoing worship that, that takes place after the Lord returns and consummates his kingdom. And again, I, I realize I'm kind of jumping the gun. Hopefully nobody is uh, going to be like, oh, I don't have to read anymore. Actually, just the opposite. Hopefully they'll be encouraged to, to keep on reading to the end. Oh, beautiful pictures here. Uh, the, the theocentrism, the doxological, the missiological, um, it, it just is all coming together so beautiful here yeah. for us. And what a, what a poignant message for the church today. It was for them in the first century and it continues to be for us today in the 21st century guys as we're wrapping up this session uh, any final thoughts i have to mention um the last part of verse eight um because we're going to see it again and again, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Mm -hmm. And this is not here accidentally. This is yeah. a very intentional seeding of the ground for the message. Mm -hmm. uh, the prayers of the saints. Uh, you know, if you're watching this podcast or listening to this podcast, uh, should say, watching the course videos and listening to the podcast, uh, get out your concordance, start reading Revelation, and find out where this shows up the next time and the time after that, because it is going to be an eye-opener. Mm -hmm. this, this is a key reference here. So I had to mention that because it's, you know, couldn't just leave it there on the table. Great. David, final word goes to you. Oh, okay. Well, again, this this new song that they sang that is recorded for us in, in verses 9 and 10, it, it is an incredible song in that it captures, in a sense, um, salvation history. And it shows us the cost of our salvation. This is not cheap grace, as it were. Um, it is, in fact... Uh, a, a, a humbling story. We rejoice over it, and rightly so. But as the recipients 
as those who were ransomed. Uh, it should also evoke in us uh, a humbleness, a, a cry that we are unworthy of this. Uh, and yet, because God chose to do this, because this was God's initiative, God's plan, we have been made worthy and we are being made worthy. And we will be completely worthy after the Lord returns. And, and to me, that these are some of the many threads that run throughout this beautiful tapestry that we call Revelation. That's great. Yeah. So you've touched on a point that we're going to address next week as we talk about um, the disciples who are on Jesus's mission. There is a cost to discipleship. And, and uh, the next couple of chapters as we get into the book of Revelation are going to reveal uh, some of that cost. But as we're ending now uh, with this session, let me just read the remainder of chapter five. It's worth reading. And, and so if you're listening or watching, just meditate on what John writes and the images that he's already portrayed for us, painted for us, and the worship that is going on around the throne. So in verse 11, John writes, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. I hope that encourages you. And I hope that will be your posture as well as you worship the Lord, that you would fall down before him. We're looking forward to next week and hope that you'll join us. So for Don and David and myself, um, we hope that uh, your continued study and revelation will help you to rediscover. Jesus in a fresh way. Mm -hmm.